Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. My name is Kurt, and uh, I'm a member of the church here, and all the other speakers were booked. So, so you got me today, and all the young people are saying, there's somebody's grandfather up there. Who is it? Uh, yeah, when I left here, I had full head of hair. Hey, Rick, Sean, how y'all doing? I'm not going to do that, because if I start doing, hey, that bird, how you build? I, go Give me a minute. We're going to talk today about uh, being devoted devoted. I have, I have five grandchildren and uh, three of them, let's see, three of them are devoted to sports. The ones that are teenagers, they are devoted to soccer and basketball. You know, they, I mean, really devoted. I mean, they're, they're part of the, what they call the travel teams. You know, that's how devoted they are, which is pretty devoted. My oldest grandson, who is honoring our family by going to South Carolina, next week, University of South Carolina, yes. You wouldn't believe how much I had to argue with my son, who is a Clemson fan, and say, no, you know, if if my grandson goes to Carolina, he'll be in the will. (laughs) Yeah, so, but it's, uh, but now he's devoted, he is deeply devoted to chess, playing chess, and so it's pretty cool. I get to go watch the other guys play sports, and and then I play chess with my grandson at Starbucks, you know, and everything. And he seems to have thought, think that he has bought, beat me several times. And he just misremembers, as Hillary Clinton said. He misremembers. Uh, we're going to talk about devotion because I really believe there's a connection between God's people being devoted to discipleship, Jesus, and mission. Not in, necessarily in order, but Jesus, discipleship, and mission. And that that has an that that has an impact on spiritual awakening in the world. I think it I think it matters whether we are. Uh, I use I use the word dabble. Somebody asked me one day, what the heck is dabble? To dabble in something is is to not seriously go at it. It's just to kind of play with it. Sometimes we're more dabbling in Christianity than devoted. Let that sink just a minute. There's a verse in the Bible that I'm going to use as my kickoff verse, and then we're going to look at several verses. I'm using the New American Standard translation today. I hope Joe will forgive me. Uh, But uh, I'm going to put this up on the screen. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 61. If you don't mind, would you read this with me? Read it aloud. Use your big voice, big boy's voice. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments, as at this day. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I've prepared and prayed, and you know, there's a lot of other people who pray every time I go to speak somewhere, but I'm praying that your Holy Spirit will use this time to draw your people who are gathered in this room and uh, perhaps watching online or will watch it later, that you will draw them to full devotion to Jesus to discipleship, and to mission. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught all of his disciples to pray. Join me, if you will. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Now, I, I, I pulled one verse out of a chapter in the Old Testament, which is, you know, not normally what we do. But I, I want to set it up and put it in context for you so that you'll know uh, what we're talking about here. David, King David, is about to die. And so he calls his son Solomon to come in to the place where he's, where he's about to die because he wants to, to challenge him, to, to, uh, to tell him how important it is, what he's been given, the responsibility that, that God has given him. He, he's now become... Uh, becoming the king. And when David dies, Solomon is the king. And there'll even be some of his siblings that argue about that. But Solomon, is, Solomon would be the king. So David brings his son in and he gives him this challenge. It's found back in chapter 2. And I want to hear, this is what David says to Solomon. I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. In other words, he's saying what we, the vernacular today, or culture would say, uh, be a man, man up, be a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. This is truly the word of the Lord. This is, this is his charge. You, know, you notice he's, what he's charging him, what he's challenging him is to say, remember, now you are becoming the king of God's people. You're not just becoming the king of some nation on earth, but you're becoming the leader, the king of God's people. And so God challenges and charges uh, Solomon and says, you, you need to keep the charge of the Lord. You need to walk in all the ways of the Lord. You need to keep the Lord's statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimony. Whatever has been written, you need to do that. And this is David the king charging Solomon the future king. And then David dies. Solomon becomes king. And after, after a brief time of worship, God comes to Solomon in a way that's manifested where he says, what would you like me to give you now that you're the king? Imagine that. You're now the king. What do you need? What do you want? And this is Solomon's answer. It's over in chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3. Here's what, here's what Solomon says to God. You have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet... I am but a little child who does not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. Solomon is not, don't confuse it, that Solomon is like seven or eight or nine years old. No, he's probably in his late teens or probably in the early 20s. But at this point right here, Solomon is recognizing I have no idea how to be king, which is, which is an act of humility. Solomon is saying, Lord, you know me, 
And all I've ever done is live in the house of a king. I don't know, to, I don't know how to do king. And so I'm, I'm telling you, I'm now the king, and then I've noticed how many people there are. Some of the scholars uh, estimate that whenever Israel uh, ended their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when they crossed over the Jordan to go into the, to Canaan, which is the land they've, now they've conquered, some estimated there was anywhere from a half a million to a million people. So by the time that Solomon is now king, we got, it's at least a million people. He's the king of a group of people that numbers in the millions. He's young, he's inexperienced, he has no idea what it is he's supposed to do. And so I, I call that wisdom. One of the, I remember going on a trip with a, a politician. I won't tell you who he is because that'll reveal too much of my bias. But he was talking about another politician, and he said, well, what do you think about him? And he said, well, he don't know what he don't know. Solomon at this point in time is going, I don't even know what I don't know. It's, I've never done this before. You remember when you had your first child? Those of you that are parents, you're going, uh, what do I do now? You know, that's that sort of a thing. And so he's, he's recognizing his, his experience and all of that. So here's what he says. He says to God, verse 9 of chapter 3, God, give your servant an understanding heart to judge or to rule or to lead your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? That's, that's wisdom, isn't it? I need a heart to understand, but I need a mind, and I need to know your will. I need you, Lord God. Help me to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong, between up and down, between what's good and not so good. Lord, that's what I'm asking for. He's saying the same thing Jesus told the, the, the apostles on the night before he was crucified. He told the apostles, he said, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. Solomon recognized it there. He says, Lord, help, please. And here's God's answer in verse 12. Behold, I've done according to your words. You, you can just imagine God saying, done. Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart so that there's been no one like you before you, nor shall there be one like you after you. I, I can't tell you, I'm, I'm old now. Well, I've been old for a long time, but I'm, I'm older now. I can't tell you the number of times I've prayed for discernment, for wisdom, to know whether to do this or whether to do that, those sort of things. In terms of right and wrong, God's already laid that out for us in the Scripture, so I've got that. It's pretty clear. But there are other issues in life that you're saying, God, please give me a wise and discerning heart and God says, done. By the way, if you're a born-again Christian, did you know that the Holy Spirit of God who gave Solomon a wise and discerning heart lives in you now? That same God. That same wisdom and discernment. All of that's available to you. You who are his disciples. What a precious and precious thing. But then Solomon <laughs> hears God say, and I'm going to give you something else. Look at verse 13. I've also given you what you have not asked for, 
riches and honor so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. He says, wow, I'm not only going to give you the wise and discerning heart, but you're going to be one of the wealthiest men on earth, and the whole world's going to know about this great man, Solomon. God adds that one of the ways that he will demonstrate his wisdom is by not only knowing what God said, but trusting it and adjusting his life to the teachings of God. The teachings of God, the laws of God, whether the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, or the New Testament, are God saying, I love you. Here's how to live. Here's the good and beautiful life. Here's how to live. He says, if you also, verse 14, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandment as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. He's saying, you know, you want to have a great life? <laughs> I don't want you to just know God's teaching so that you can fill in the blanks if you're given a test. I want you to actually trust and believe that that's the best way to live. That forgiving people is the best way to live. Honoring people, being faithful to people, telling the truth. That's a better way to live. It's not exactly the way our culture teaches us to live, but we say, I've chosen to live this way. Well, and Solomon's, you know, he's, he's happy, he's really Everything's wonderful, but then he sets about to build the temple because uh, David wanted to build the temple, and he had the sin with Bathsheba that resulted in Solomon, and he begins to build the temple, and it takes him seven years to build the temple, and then he decides to build his own palace. So, so it's kind of interesting. He put the temple before his palace, so all total, 20 years pass. from Solomon's being anointed. And chapter 8, where we read that one verse, that verse 61, that is right in, uh, in, towards the end of an entire chapter that is this mega celebration that was going on when they dedicated the temple. There were several of you that were here when we dedicated this building. Uh, and uh, when we, several of you, when Midland Park was dedicated, and several of you brought your children to be dedicated, but it's a mega dedication. If you can imagine over a million people, let's say round it off, there are a million people, and, and Solomon is there to dedicate the temple and to delegate, delegate the pass, palace. And so that's the entire chapter eight is what's going on. And of course, Solomon makes a very short speech in the beginning of it, and he tells the story of how God delivered Israel from slavery in, in Egypt, how he brought them through, brought them out through the wilderness, manna and, and those things, water from the rocks, those blessings, and then brought them into the land of Canaan, allowed them to conquer this country and eventually be one of the mightiest, powerful nations on earth. But then he tells them, you have to re remember, God's law is not necessarily what ticks God off or makes him mad. It's God saying, look, you're my people. I love you. Here's how you should live. And he reminds him of all of that. And then the Bible says the Ark of the Covenant, which supposedly was supposed to have it had before manna and the Ten Commandments, they bring them into the temple on the dedication. And the Bible says in verse 11, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Just like you who are born-again Christians, 
the glory, the glory of the Lord can fill you as well. For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember that. It's a beautiful time. And when it's all brought in there and everything's going wonderful. But then Solomon prays. He begins in verse 22 of chapter 8. And he prays all the way to verse 53. It's kind of like us pastors. You ever been to one of those things where some of us pastors and preachers, we actually preach a sermon in the prayer. That's what he does. He does that whole line. He reminds me, it's a beautiful prayer and everything. But then in verse 54, when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. Did you notice? Here is the king of this mighty nation on his knees before God. And by the way, raising hands is not Pentecostal. Solomon did it. Praising God, glorifying God. Then Solomon decides to speak. And it says here he spoke with a loud voice. Verse 55. He stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice. Might have been yelling. Saying, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses, his servant. He says, look, God has done what he said he was going to do. God says, I brought you out. I've made you a mighty nation. You've built a temple that will be the center of the worship here. And you, I've given you Solomon to be your king. And Solomon says in verse seven, 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. Notice what he's saying there again. He's reminding him, saying, look, you, you, we're God's people. We're not just people who go to heaven when they die. We are that, but we're God's people here on earth. And he reminds them of, of God's presence, of, of God's power. And that God has done all of these wonderful things. And, and he tells them, walk in God's ways so you can live in God's blessing. And he asks God, God, please always be near to us. God has promised to do that. And then he says, Solomon says this, verse 59. May these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. And then he challenges the people of God. And from what we know, the challenge of the people of God said, we will. We will follow the Lord our God. We will devote ourselves to the Lord God. And then he says these words again. Read this with me one more time. Let your heart, therefore, be kindly, wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as at this day. Hmm. And at this point, Solomon is devoting himself. I mean, he's not just saying, y'all need to do this. He said, I'm going to do this too. I'm doing this. I'm devoting myself to God. And we challenge you to do the very same thing. So the people devote themselves to all of this. 
to be God's people on earth and to follow his will. Over in, over in chapter 10, there's a couple of verses. I didn't put them on the slides, but one of the verses in chapter 10, verse 23 says, King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, which means he was the richest and wisest king on earth. There's even a, a colloquialism. We talk about people as being as wise as Solomon. People came from miles around to come hear his wisdom. One of the women was Queen of Sheba. You've heard the story about that. Verse 24 says, all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his heart. So God has blessed him, and he's blessed Israel, and he's, he, they've blessed everything they do. And so here's a king that has wealth and power and wisdom and wonderful political alliances and everything. This guy is the epitome of success. But over in chapter 11, let me read to you a couple of verses. Same book, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. He, Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, which are just women available to him. They weren't his wives. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. I don't know about you, but to go from celebration, everything's wonderful, and then blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing to saying, I think I need another wife. Oh, there goes another one. Yeah. You know, during that time, one of the ways that royalty established that they were truly kings was they would have multiple wives. They, just, they didn't just want to be committed to one woman. They wanted to have as many women available as they possibly could. And I would say 700 was a pretty good number. So wasn't Solomon devoted to the teachings of God? Whenever, um, whenever the nation of Israel was about to go over into the promised land, God told them about the future. He said, in the future, you're going to want a king. And he says, and your king's going to want to have a lot of wives, just like all the other kings, a lot of women at his bidding. And God says, that's not for you. You have one wife, and you devote yourself to that wife. That is your wife. Not hundreds, not as many as you want, and all of those things. But at some point, and I, it, it doesn't really tell us where it is, at some point, God, Solomon forgot who was God. 
And Solomon actually thought he could decide what he would do. So if he wanted to have two wives, he'd have two wives. If I can have two, I might as well have four. There was a verse in the book of Judges that took place before they really conquered the promised land, Canaan. And the verse repeats three times in the book of Judges. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. See, Solomon should have read the book of Judges. (laughs) Because what he was doing was what he thought was right. It's like you say, I know God said this, but I'm going to do this. And the Bible says that his wives turned his heart away. Now, this is not an indictment to wives. This is not God saying, you know, those wives are just a wicked cause of every sin. No, 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 no. It's not that. See, when he began to form political alliances and to indulge his own sexual desires, what he did was marry women who were not committed to God. See, the women that he had in his life, those 700, they were not devoted to God. They were devoted to other gods. And they turned his heart away. How did that happen? I think it's, uh, well, Kurt's opinion. My name's Kurt. Kurt's opinion. The more powerful some of us get, the more we tend to misuse the power that we have. Lord Acton, who was a, a British politician in the 19th century, he said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. See, Solomon at some point began to forget where everything came from. I can't throw a whole lot of rocks at him because I've done the same thing. There have been times I've taken credit for all God did. There was somebody called me on the way out after the first service and they said, that was really good. Thank you very much. And I'm going, yes, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And they say, you got us out early. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know what? I mean, all of us are prone to that, to consider the commands of God as being, well, optional conditional, maybe even partial. I'm going to obey God in eight of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) You got a buddy who says, well, hey, I only do six. And what happens is as soon as you begin to be less than fully devoted to Jesus, to discipleship, and to mission, you begin to make allowances and exceptions, and before you know it, you're not just allowing a few things in there, you'll discover that you're not fully devoted at all. So when Solomon made these decisions to have 700 wives and all of that that he did, so did the nation. So did the nation. But I've noticed (laughs) there's a, a, a phrase called a family of origin. That's the family that you were raised in as a child. 
Solomon was raised in his family of origin was David and Bathsheba. Solomon was conceived when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then David had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. And then he was, David was married to several people before then. So quite often the sins of the fathers are repeated in the children, those sort of things. Thankfully, I, this is one of the things I, you know, I'm really grateful that God preserves stories like this as well as victorious stories of glory and blessing because I know there's grace and mercy for me too for I'm imperfect just as well but I, when I see this story of Solomon I recognize how blessed he was I say Lord I truly want to be fully devoted to you I want to be fully devoted to Jesus fully devoted to discipleship fully devoted to mission his mission I find myself easily being devoted to a lot of things rather than that first devotion for Jesus and I think once again Kurt's opinion I think there's a connection between the culture spiritual awakening in the culture and our devotion I think it matters whether we are devoted or not I, I think when our devotion to Jesus uh, to discipleship or, or to the mission whenever it's conditional or partial or whatever I I think that is observed that's why I think one of the verses that is used quite often in when we're seeking revival as we sang earlier about is second chronicles chapter 7 14 which is recording the same event but that's where they say if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and heal their land notice it begins if my people revival doesn't begin with the lost it begins with the saved those of us who are disciples of Jesus we need to be revived and renewed because we have been wholly devoted fully devoted not dabbling in religion not just considering it or knowing it but living it out devoted to Jesus discipleship and mission what I've observed over over the years from my own personal experience or I call them three personal observations and I share them with you hope, hoping that they will be maybe some help with you for you observation number one is this the world the flesh and the devil will try to keep disciples of Jesus from keeping our commitments you need to recognize that once you get saved 
The devil doesn't say, oh, dang, lost another one, and then walk away. You know, in, in my opinion, I think he ramps it up. And I think the devil's primary tool is deception. And so you remember whenever uh, they were, Adam and Eve were tempted to eat the fruit, and, uh, and Eve said, well, the Lord told us not to eat that fruit. The devil said, oh, I mean, you know that's not true. See, what the, what the devil, the world, and even the flesh will tell you is that it really doesn't matter if you want to have sex before marriage. It really doesn't matter if you want to be greedy. It really doesn't matter if you want to be self-centered and think about yourself all the time. Ah, it doesn't matter to God. See, those are the temptations that are going to come in your life as long as you live. And they don't end, I don't think, until heaven. Because Satan's not a quitter. <laughs> He's not going to quit and give up on you. And his, my granny Johnson used to tell me the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and I believe that. But the world's being run by the devil and the forces of evil in my flesh. And I am still, t I'm 75 years old, and I'm still tempted to sin, to do ungodly things, to turn away, to lessen my commitment, to sleep late rather than getting up and go reading my Bible. Those temptations are going to come in your life. So you must prepare yourself for them rather than hope you'll be strong when they come. My second observation is this, motive matters. Your motive is why you do what you do. And I think your motive matters. I think for far too long, when I was a younger person, probably younger as some of the youth that are here today, students, uh, I used to try to be good uh, to make my mom and daddy happy or to keep from being punished or whenever I went to church so that I wouldn't feel guilty or, or those things like that. Listen, I'm, I'm telling you, guilt and shame and duty and all of those things, those can all be motives in your life for why to trust God. But I want to suggest to you, you need a lasting motive. And that lasting motive is gratitude that results in love. Gratitude for what Christ did. Several of my friends that are pastors in other churches have communion every Sunday. One of them I asked, I said, why do you do that every Sunday? He said, how often do y'all do it? I said, we're Baptists. We can't afford it, but once a quarter. I said, why do you do it every Sunday? He said, because I have found that I need to be reminded of what it cost Jesus to save me. I need to remember the love of God as expressed in Christ. And though it may just be a wafer and some grape juice, that is a reminder of what he did for me. It is a reminder of his love for me. My gratitude results in love for him and trust and obedience. So your motive matters. The third thing, though, that I would observe from this whole text is that our walk talks and our talk talks. Now, if you were here when I was pastor, which seems now like about 140 years ago, I used to say that all the time, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks more than your talk talks. What I'm suggesting to you is that the same thing that Solomon said several thousand years ago. 
when he said that the way you live matters. Do you remember verse 60? Solomon says, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. That's the whole reason that we devote ourselves and then live out our devotion. Our first witness is the way we live. The way we live. And not just talking about sin management. I'm talking about cultivating the fruits of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So how can we be fully devoted? This past week, I picked up, uh, I, I ordered and came in. Uh, there was a book years ago in the 19th century called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Excellent, excellent. That recorded martyrs uh, through history. Well, there's been a revision of that and an updating of that. It's wonderful. But what, what in it, it tells the story of the martyrs. A martyr is not just a witness. It is someone who died for the faith. And this, this, the chapters begin with the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember when he was stoned? You know, and then uh, the brother of, uh, of Jesus, we think, on earth, James, was, was killed. And, all, and then eventually, you know, Peter was said to be crucified upside down. John exiled to Patmos. The devotion of the apostles and the disciples of the first century was so deep and so profound and so strong that persecution, suffering, and even death could not keep them from being devoted to Jesus, to discipleship, and to mission. Every now and then the cynic in me rises up, and when I thought of that, I wondered if the 21st century would e church would even exist if the devotion of the 21st century disciples if it was not like theirs those who died those who were fully devoted those who like Job said though he slay me yet will I serve him Those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we've got to reflect on the devotion of the first century disciples in order to imitate it. And then look at the second century disciples and the 10th century disciples and the 15th century and the 20th and the 21st. How, how did they stay devoted? How did they do it? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And here's what it says. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. Notice that word continually. That's a tense in the Greek that means a repeated action. It's not like they just devoted themselves when revival came. 
they devoted themselves every day, every morning, and two or three times during the day. I believe that Christ is calling his 21st century disciples to full devotion. I believe that God is saying to us through the scripture and through his Holy Spirit, if my people, if my people were devoted unconditionally, not selectively, not considering the will of God and the ways as revealed in Jesus to be options, but rather devoted to them as God's ways. I truly believe we could see that spiritual awakening we've been praying for in the culture. I truly believe that. Now, that's not to say, oh, I feel so bad. You know, I'm not doing I'm, Listen, that's every time you come to the Lord and you, through his word and scripture, God offers you his grace, his forgiveness, and what is often called a do-over. But he says, listen, today can be the first day of the rest of your life. So if you have not been fully devoted, you can be. The forgiveness of God is available and open to whoever comes, confessing their sin, acknowledging that God's way as revealed in Jesus is not only a good way, it is the way, the truth, the life. I don't think this planet has seen what it would be like in our culture and in our world if the disciples of Jesus Christ who are all members of churches would devote themselves to Jesus, discipleship, and mission. And I'm praying for that. I hope you will too. Join me if you would. We'll close in prayer. Holy Spirit of God the Father and Christ the Son, I ask you now to show your people, show me, show us, whether we need to devote ourselves more fully than we currently are to Jesus, to discipleship, and to mission. I pray you would forgive us if we've just been dabbling in Christianity. Forgive us if we've acted the same way as Solomon and been distracted by so many things that are not necessarily bad, but they're just, they seem to have been before you. Forgive us, Lord. I recognize, Lord, you call us your children, your people, and you call us to full devotion. But just as Solomon was distracted, we too get distracted. I pray, Lord, we would devote ourselves first to you, to discipleship, and then to mission. Show us how to be fully devoted to you, Lord, discipleship and to mission. And now I wanna, I'm going to stop praying. It's your turn. The Lord's listening. Hopefully he's already spoke to you. It's your turn to pray within yourself.
operate in yourself. hear the prayers of your people and transform us to full devotion to you. I pray that you will move in us to devote ourselves to you because we love you and we trust you. I pray we'll devote ourselves individually and corporately. And I do pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. We have a wonderful prayer team ministry here in our church. We pray for a lot of things. You uh, ask for us to pray, they send it out on an email and we get to pray for you. If there's some way that I or our prayer team can pray for you, particularly if this is a hard decision for you, for full devotion, uh, just write it on a card, put your name Put as much as you want to pray, put or nothing, and lay it up here on this, this stage as you leave or before you leave. And I promise we'll pray for you and your prayer team. We'll pray for you too. Because I've, I'm convinced. Charleston, South Carolina, America, and humanity can be changed by a group of devoted people and you can be one of those.